0: Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Hot Rod Bob, and you've got gas, the morning edition. Glad you could tune in this morning. You are there, aren't you? I'm looking for you. Let's see. I don't see anybody yet. Hmm. I know you're in there somewhere. That's right. I'm looking closely. There you are. All right. I'm Hot Rod Bob. Good morning. It is time for more gas. And this time we're going to be talking about things independently. Well, independent front suspension, anyway. Now, for many, many years, and through the 1940s, cars used a solid beam front axle. Now, early years, it was made out of wood. Later years, it became iron, and it was forged, and it was a solid beam. It kept those front wheels straight. Yes, it kept them in line. Now, you could adjust camber and caster by bending that solid beam axle. You could get some extra camber out of it. You could tip it back with wedges where the spring mounted and change the camber, but it was very limited. Now, in 1904, a young man named William Brush helped bring about the modern front-end suspension on cars by crashing his brother's car. Mm, Yeah, that's a good excuse to tell your brother. I designed a new front suspension. Of course, I had to give up your car to do it. Well, he ran into a ditch. What happened was, you got to remember back, you got to (laughs) remember, you weren't even around then. But in 1904, very skinny wheels, in some cases they were wood wheels like you had on a buggy, on a horse-drawn buggy, and parallel leaf springs on each side. Again, tillers. Some had steering wheels, but in either case, there was nothing to dampen the movement or the shimmy back and forth or the bouncing of the chassis and car in suspension. Well, after this accident, sending him into a cow pasture, I'm sure he found some cow pies, and through a barbed wire fence, I'm sure he got nicked a little bit, Mr. Brush with his brother designed an independent front suspension. Now, they used coil springs. They used a flexible front axle. It was wood. Again, that was the major component back then. And it did have, well, some other dampening devices in it. that dampened the bounce, or shock absorbers as we know them now, to keep the flexible hickory axle from just bouncing. Well, it helped. It made a world of difference. It was complicated for the time, and some European automakers tried to use a similar type method, but without real success. Gottlieb Daimler Daimler in Germany was the leading company that did that. However, most manufacturers stood fast with leaf springs because they were simple, they were easy to assemble, and they were inexpensive, less moving parts, less to assemble, and that stayed in, in pretty much the way it was for the next 25 years. Now, cars started getting independent front suspensions in the early 1930s, except for Ford. Yes, Henry Ford, the the man who made the Model T and became famous for his production, didn't use parallel leaf springs. He used a single leaf spring that went across the axle not a parallel with the frame now that was ended up that ended up saving him a lot of money because you needed two springs per vehicle rather than four it saved on assembly time it was rugged and it didn't have some of the side effects of parallel leaf springs so that was henry ford's answer to the issue it was an inexpensive way of doing it it worked other companies at that time came up with friction shock absorbers, and those were to dampen the movement, the up and down movement of the axles. You had to adjust them, and you had to tighten them from time to time and replace the worn-out pads that were in there, and that was metal to metal for the most part. They squeaked a lot. Now, If you oiled them, they really didn't do much good. But 25 years after Brush had his brush with death, independent front suspensions and coil springs started becoming popular. Now, 25 years later, suddenly, about 1934, Generous Motors, Chrysler, Hudson, and others reintroduced coil spring front suspensions, and this time with independent arms. We call them A-arms or lower control arms and an upper control arm, keeping the tires parallel as they went up and down, through the motion with the coil spring and a hydraulic shock absorber they dampen that motion making the vehicles drive a lot smoother and handle a little bit more predictably now i've had old cars with those suspensions and they're smooth they're predictable they're not the greatest depending on the manufacturer now my 48 plymouth for example has independent front suspension on it 1948 Not really uncommon by that point. Let's drop that one. And that's where you find that, well, they didn't have it down quite right. They didn't understand handling concepts of the time. And my car goes into positive camber when you make a turn. So the outsides of my tires tend to wear quicker than the insides. Now, for handling purposes, and when I was racing, we would adjust negative camber into the front. This way, when you went into a turn, you put pressure on the sidewall of the tire, the tread tended to become more flat, and you handled better. If you look at race cars today, especially in the case of circle track cars, you're going to see the outside wheels adjusted at a different camber than the inside front wheels. And you'll even see some guys actually bend their rear axles to get negative camber. This way, when the vehicle shifts, the weight shifts over, the flattened tread area becomes better contact with the ground. Now, not all cars used coil springs at at first. And uh, Ford, as I said, was one of the last companies to switch to a coil spring front suspension. Henry Well, he was sold on his single spring, it was cost effective, and through 1948, Ford's used independent leaf springs, one in the front, one in the back. Very reliable, gave a bouncy ride, but very reliable and inexpensive. Henry II saw the error of the ways, saw how everyone else was going, and finally conceded And with the 1949 Fords that came out, they had an independent suspension pretty much the same as everybody else's. Now, everyone had a different take on this, and even today, the independent front suspensions are different from one manufacturer to another. They've all got their little edge. Now, with the advent of struts in the front, front uh, front strut, the strut acts as the locator. You have a lower control arm, not necessarily an A-shape as most American cars were, but an arm that pivots. The shock absorber or strut assembly with the axle on it tends to keep everything in alignment. Another variation, McPherson strut came out in the 1940s. One of the engineers for General Motors in Europe, Opel, came up with this design. General Motors didn't really like it for the U.S. market, and it became something that was pretty standard on European cars long before the Americans adopted the strut front suspension. It's simple to assemble. It's simplistic in its number of parts. It works quite well, and you'll find many cars using it. Now, there's also the Chapman strut. Now, this is a little bit different in that your axle or hub assembly is not part of the strut. The strut is a shock absorber and spring system that will bolt to the axle. The lower control arm still is the same as if you had a regular McPherson strut, but the Chapman strut is a little less expensive to maintain because it hasn't got the axle as part of it, and the shock absorber and spring assembly will merely bolt to that. Now, independent rear suspensions came about later on, and although the Europeans first used it to improve ride and handling, the Americans took a long time. As a matter of fact, the first independent rear suspension production car that I can think of in the U.S. would have been the Corvette in 1963. Now, they have been tried by others, and there's the D.D. On type that's kind of a swing axle. Corvair had a swing axle independent rear suspension. I guess, you know, before the Corvette, the Corvette had a swing axle assembly. It really had its issues. Volkswagen used it. Porsche used it. Mercedes used it. Alpha used it. It was used quite extensively, but it really didn't get the attention it needed and the refinements it needed. The Corvair helped get those refinements done with their unsafe at any speed reputation because of the swing axle and the rear wheels tucking in hard corners, and when you lifted the throttle and the weight came off, they addressed that with limiting straps. On a Volkswagen I had, we put what was called a Z bar on the back, and the Z bar was basically the shape of a Z and it connected the right to the left and kept the tires from tucking. So that was the purpose of that. There were limiter straps. I used sway bars as well on Volkswagens, I raced. And uh, it worked quite well. I never had the issue that a lot of people talk about. Now, other types of suspensions that came into play were air suspensions. That's nothing new. Air ride is not something new. As a matter of fact, um, heck, it was available in the 1950s on some vehicles. wasn't quite perfected, and it did have its issues. Sometimes you saw cars that looked kind of cool being lowered, and the only reason was is their airbag system gave up. Packard had a self-leveling air system in their suspensions in the mid-50s, and it was quite interesting. But the car, you could get seasick driving in that car. And I I got to drive a Packard Caribbean with that, I think it was a Caribbean or Bermuda, it was a convertible. And I was a a driver at an auction. I volunteered at an auction to see what it would be like going through one of these big auctions. I'd never been to one before. Well, I got to drive this Packard. Jay Leno came over to look at it. And he educated me on this car because what the suspension did is it self-leveled. The car could lean, but the suspension would pump up and level the car out. The problem was it was a little slow by today's standards. And as I was driving the car, you'd hit the brakes, the nose would dive, and all of a sudden you, you hear it go, and it would raise back up in the front. Well, it kind of got you seasick. Well, luckily, I didn't have to drive it very far. Now, there's also other types of suspensions, and if you look at the first minis, they didn't have springs. They had what was called a hydroelastic suspension, and basically it was rubber blocks, and they moved and, and flexed with the suspension. Later on in the Austin America and the MG1100 sedans, they used an alcohol not a drinking type alcohol inside bags, and that was the suspension. Now, you still needed shock absorbers, but they worked on that. And uh, you know, the first airbag system well, that came out in 1933, and Firestone decided to do that. Hi, Ron Safried, how are you doing today? And Bobby Dye, thank you for tuning in. Oh, the Citron, yes, <laughs> Jay Black, that's the vacuum operated system. Vince Yamasaki, how are you doing today, sir? All right, so the first use of torsion bars, here's another type of suspension, it used control arms, but it used torsion bars. So it was instead of a spring, as we know it, a coil spring or a leaf spring, it used bars that would twist. Chrysler adopted this throughout their line starting in the late 1950s. Chrysler went to the torsion bar on their large cars. Despite its excellent ride qualities, it was higher in cost and limited in acceptance. Now, they say it's limited in acceptance. I didn't see any issues with it. And they were kind of neat because you had an adjustment and you could raise and lower your car. You could adjust it. The problem was that adjustment was also integral to the alignment. And when you lowered the vehicle with a torsion bar suspension, you gave it extra camber. So if you didn't have the vehicle in the right ride height, the tires would wear quickly. So they, uh, they they that took some issues and they figured it out. You know, now Chrysler also used inline torsion bars. They followed the parallel. They were parallel to the frame. Later on, they came up with a cross bar where one torsion bar went one way, one went the other way for the individual wheels. Volkswagen used torsion leaves, basically, and a torsion bar. In the front axle, there were individual leaves, or not bars, but flat pieces of metal. Those were torsions. And if you look at the torsion tubes on an early Volkswagen beetle, inside those tubes are these torsional springs. They're not a solid piece, they're individual leaves or pieces. And you could, you want to soften the ride up, you took a leaf out. You wanted to lower the vehicle or adjust it in the center of that twin I beam was a bolt or something that held those springs in place. What we would do on the early Volkswagens to lower them is to cut a circumference around that holder that held those springs in place, weld in brackets and an adjuster, and you could move that piece and turn it and that would entail lowering or raising the vehicle now for off-road uses people turned it the opposite way raising the vehicle up giving it more ground clearance now shock absorbers as i said first came out early on in 1897 but it was a very crude and rude situation Uh, Shock absorbers were fitted to bicycles and everything else. Initially, they were a friction type, and friction types were used for many, many years. In the 50s and the 30s, late 30s, early, late 30s, when Generous Motors started going to independent front suspensions, they came up with an interesting arrangement. The upper control arm in the front of the car was also the shock absorber, and it was a hydraulic unit that the control arm connected to, and it monitored and reduced the amount of bounce. Now, I had a 1951 Buick with that, and uh, those things would would ride super smooth, but you'd float down the street. Now, I changed the shock absorber fluid, which was a very thin fluid, to 30-weight motor oil, Why would I put motor oil in a shock absorber? It was an old racing trick that we used on MGs that used a similar situation. We would drain the thin oil that's used in the shock absorbers and replace it with a thicker motor oil. It stiffened the ride, made the car handle a little bit better, and it stopped that motion, that floating motion, or it dampened it a little bit. So independent suspensions and shock absorber technology. Today... Wow, shock absorber technology is amazing. From valve sizes to gas, to gas over hydraulic, there's so many different types of shock absorbers you can get, and you can actually adjust them. There's And that's been around for a long time, and I, a couple guys shaking their heads, well, of course they've got adjustable shock absorbers. There's also different types of valvings. There's the 9010 shock absorbers the drag racers use on the front. It goes up relatively easy so that the front end comes up and makes a weight transfer to the rear, but it's very stiff on the downside, so the front end stays up higher a little bit longer and slows down. Those are used on the front. A 50-50 shock with equal valving is used in the rear to keep the back end from squatting. There are shock absorbers with an adjustment tab on the bottom. You can adjust the valving at the bottom of the shock absorber. There are some that are electronic. There are some that are magnetic. Corvettes had a magnetic system and still do. Uh, There's a lot of different ways of controlling a suspension, and we've learned many through the years. Now, a lot of people wanted to raise their vehicles up or add extra load capacity, and the easy way to do that were helper springs that would attach the outside to, of the shock absorber or the shock absorbers with the helper springs. And then there was the air shocks, Gabriel hijackers. I remember those back in the in the 70s where it was a airbag inside a shock absorber casing, and you could fill the bag up and raise and lower the car. Now, it looked simple. It worked. It didn't work for very long because the shock absorber mounts were never designed to hold the vehicle up they were merely designed to hold the shock absorber so a lot of friends experienced situations where they actually broke the shock absorber mount because it wasn't strong enough to hold the car up and in well the 60s and early 70s when we started using bigger and wider tires and wider wheels we didn't narrow the rear axle to bring the tires into the fenders so to clear the tires from hitting the fenders We raised them up. Now, there was many things we'd use. There was a puck system that we put underneath the coil springs. I did that on my Pontiac, where it raised the vehicle up about two, three inches. But I also added air shocks, and that raised it up a little bit more, and it made it a little bit stiffer so that the tire didn't hit the fenders. Right, Walt Brandt? Hey, how you doing this morning? Now, there were also equalizer springs. And in the case of... Uh, leaf springs, there was another spring that you could buy at Pet Boys and other places that would clamp on to the leaf spring, effectively making it a little bit stiffer. Did it really work? Mm, It did somewhat. Now, hydraulic shock absorbers have been the mainstay, and gas shock absorbers are a little bit better, or a lot better. They don't have the heating issue. Now, in cars with hydraulic shock absorbers, if you use them heavy, like off-roading and things of that nature, the fluid, the the liquid inside there, tends to heat up, foam, and you lose the ability to absorb the shock, and that's where the gas shocks came in. Then there's nitrogen-filled shocks, and there's all sorts of other shock absorbers. Nissan went to the electronically controlled shocks about 1985. Corvettes and Chevrolets did that a year or so later. Now, Lotus had one of the first active suspensions, and it did away with springs and shock absorbers altogether. It had 18 motion sensor transducers that had computers for all four wheels and hydraulic rams and this would prevent the roll the dive the jounce and the bump and it was very complicated and it would change positions almost 250 times per second it's a very expensive system and well lotus was different so front suspensions and rear suspensions keep the tires on the road i'm hot rod bob You've got Gas, the morning edition. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget our YouTube channel, Two Tired Guys Productions, Talking About Cars, and Gas, the Great American Auto Scene, all available in past Gas and classic Talking About Cars on YouTube. Sign up for our YouTube channel. It's free. We never charge for this. Become a subscriber. Look for us on YouTube, Two Tired Guys Productions, and Gas, the Great American Auto Scene. Take care, folks. You have a great day. Gas, the great American auto scene, brought to you by Service Tech Equipment, where you get the equipment you need for the shop you're using to work on your cars. Get professional equipment at a consumer price. Don't buy the cheap stuff from the guy that advertises nationwide and gets his stuff from China. Talk to the guys at Service Tech. I'm Hot Rod Bob. You've got gas, the morning edition. Take care, folks. And we're going to record a new edition of Talking About Cars this afternoon. You'll hear it next week, and it'll be on YouTube in two weeks. And then next Tuesday night, not tonight, a week from Tuesday night, we're going to have the new formed racing team from Irwindale Drag Strip. The Irwindale girls are going to be on with us, and we'll be talking to Tatiana, Nicole, Amber, and Kelly. We're going to have them there with us, and, gosh, whoever else that joins us, we'll talk about their fun and excitement they've been having. Here are ladies that never raced before, all have come together in the last year, and they are dynamite. They are tough competitors at the track. So we'll talk to them next week on talking about on good on gas, the great American auto scene, along with Bill Montgomery and Rodney Allen Rippey. Now, if you'd like to see our first interview with Rodney Allen Rippey, it is on Talking About Cars right now. Check it out on YouTube and Radio.com, Apple iTunes, and more. And Gas is on iTunes as well. Check us out there. The audio version of Gas available on iTunes. You have a great day, folks. I'm Hot Rod Bob, and you've got Gas, the morning edition.